So now, brothers and sisters, I will have you turn with me in your pew Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. You can find this on page 1195 in your pew Bibles. And we're actually going to be reading not just from verse 29, but I chose to extend our passage a little bit. We'll start in verse 23. And as we've already sort of been talking about, New Year's is an opportunity to look back so that we might look ahead. Last week in his Christmas Eve sermon, Pastor Mark shared a really great illustration from the great Reformed Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, about the bow and arrow. The further back you pull the bow, the further and straighter the arrow will shoot. And it's a similar sort of concept when we think about our past. And when we think about the past of the church and of God's people, we will be even more prepared to go into our future. And it was actually, I'd already chosen my passage by last week, and so it was very apt for Mark to bring that up in last week's sermon. As we look now ahead to the future, I actually want us to go far back into our past. And we're going to be doing that by looking at our passage here from Hebrews chapter 11, which is famously known as the passage which talks about the so-called Hall of Faith where the author goes back deep into Israel's history to recount the ways in which God's people have been faithful. In other words, how they've trusted his promises and how that has led them and enabled them to suffer and to endure many difficult things, to overcome many different challenges, and even, in some cases, to die while proclaiming his name. And what we learned from all of this is that faith is really the key spiritual ingredient for enduring through not only the good times that we face, but also through the bad times, the difficult times, the times where everything seems costly and dangerous to be one who follows the Lord Jesus. And so faith, as the first chapter or first verse of chapter 11 points out to us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And so in other words, faith is the settled conviction that God is God and that everything he's promised to us will in fact come true. And it will not only come true, but it will make all the suffering we endure, all the persecution we may experience, all the sacrifices that we make for Christ's sake worth it in the end. That is the key belief of faith. And so Hebrews 11 then is primarily a passage that teaches us that when we have this kind of faith, we will be able to overcome the different challenges that life throws at us. We will be able to endure through thick and through thin. And so why have I chosen this passage on the eve of a new year? Maybe it sounds a little grim. It sounds a little stark. And I have to tell you that it was very much on purpose. I think we as the church, the capital C church, especially in our part of the world, face difficult times ahead. I'm no prophet. I don't know the future. But I sense storm clouds on the horizon in some ways, some really important ways, which we'll get into. And so I think what we need to do is have a sober account of what faith is, 
so that we might be like the people that we read about in this passage this morning. And so, with that in mind, let's pray once more to the Lord and ask for his light to be shed upon our passage this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your word in silence, waiting for you to speak. Lord, it's not I who speak, or I who am worthy to be listened to, but you. You alone, Father, have words of life. Where else can we go? And so we ask that through this reading this morning, you would speak, that we would hear you, and that we would follow your voice. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23 to chapter 12, verse 2. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. So what we've just read is the transition to one of the high marks of the entire book of Hebrews, which is itself one of the more remarkable books of the entire New Testament canon. It's a unique book, as the name implies, because it's written to the Hebrew people in particular. Hebrew or Jewish Christians who were no longer following the old covenant faith, but had now moved over into following Christ. They had in some ways left the old ways behind and had now come to see Christ as the fulfillment of the old covenant. And so in a word then, Hebrews is a book all about Jesus Christ, and it points to him again and again and again in order to show that he is exactly the perfect fulfillment, the Messiah to whom they'd all been looking forward to for millennia. And so as, whereas most of these books in the New Testament were written by, mostly by Paul, typically to audiences that were either mostly Gentile or a mixture of both being Jew and Gentile, this book is clearly written to Hebrew Christians who had come to believe in Christ. And so in a sense then, Hebrews is a book of what we might think of as early apologetics. It was sort of an early defense of the Christian faith. And it was trying to make a claim. The claim of this apologia, you might say, or this defense, is that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, and he is the exact imprint of his nature, which comes from the first lines of the opening chapter, and that he is therefore better and greater than the good, but ultimately imperfect law and temple, priesthood, and sacrificial system of the old covenant system. And so that's the sort of claim that it makes. Then it builds its case, explaining through several chapters how Jesus is exactly the fulfillment of all that the prophets had foretold. And then finally, we might think of Hebrews as a call, an urging, an exhortation, imploring its readers to endure anything and everything that may very well come their way as a result of their allegiance to Christ as king. And so I've, I heard in a sermon this last week from another pastor named Ligon Duncan, he sort of breaks up Hebrews into three major uh, pieces or parts that I think is a helpful outline. He simply says, it's, you could think of it like this, Jesus is greater, and then it says, never lose faith, and then he adds to that, follow the example then of those who endured by faith. And so if that's a three-part way of thinking of the book of Hebrews, we find ourselves very squarely in that final section. Follow the example of those who endured by faith. And so here in Hebrews 11, the author is dead set on retracing a chronological laundry list of the Old Testament saints who, by God's grace, endured 
whichever challenges that were thrown at them along their journey, even, as we're told, torture and death because of their indestructible faith and faithfulness to the faithfulness of God. They knew God was going to fulfill all of his promises, and so it was worthwhile to them to endure. And so here, the author of Hebrews is not so much trying to explain faith in the way in which by it we are justified. That's more of a Pauline theme. Here, in this book, he's trying to explain that faith is... He's teaching more about faith and what faith looks like in the life of a Christian. The object of faith is the promises of God. In justifying faith, it's the promise that you are made righteous in Christ, that his righteousness is imputed to you. But faith can be thought of in a more general or even a more subjective way. What faith is like in the life of the person? What does this faith cause us to do? And this kind of faith depends on, then, the unchangeableness of God. We can experience this sort of rock-solid faith because we know God is rock-solid. This is what Christian theologians call the doctrine of God's immutability. You can't change God. He cannot be muted, turned down, changed, or altered in any way. And so we can trust him. All of his promises will come true. He is ultimately faithful to his people. As even the next chapter after chapter 12, chapter 13, tells us in a famous verse, verse 8 of chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so for God's people, this immutability or unchanging nature of God means that we can endure anything and everything that comes our way because he has promised good to his people that he cannot go back on or that he cannot provide for. And that good is, if we want to be specific, the resurrection, which is mentioned a few times in our passage this morning. The resurrection that we have where one day we will be raised to new bodies And we will commune in eternal fellowship with Christ our Lord forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so regardless of whether or not we see the fruit of our faithfulness in this life, we can endure all knowing that what's ahead is better and greater than even the best this world or this life has to offer us. We can endure knowing that whatever comes, whether it's good and it's everything I can give that up. I can endure giving that up because whatever that is, is not as good as Christ. And this is what we see here in the opening lines of our passage this morning in verses 23 through 28, where we see the whole life of Moses told in six powerful verses from his birth all the way through the Exodus and leading the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And the crux of this entire passage comes to us in verse 26, where we read that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here, Moses is essentially depicted as an appraiser, as one who discerns and evaluates and assesses the value of something. He is looking between these two things and he is thinking about which one is more important, which one is more valuable. And so the key word here then is that Moses considered. He considered. 
That word in Greek, which is this word hegeomai, means that he thought about these things very carefully. It wasn't a split-second decision that he made uh, just one day to just follow God. This was something he pondered and thought about. And he wrestled with the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages. And when he finally came to his conclusion, we can see from his story that his decision was clear and firm. Christ and his sufferings were of more value than all the riches of Egypt. Now, we could think about what we've learned over the years, maybe as even children learning about the tombs of the Egyptian kings, the pharaohs, and knowing how great and vast the wealth is in these, in these places. At this time, this was the world's leading empire with the most power and riches of the entire known planet. And yet Moses says, I would rather take the reproach of Christ. This then is the choice we still face today. Will you take the reproach and shame of Christ? Or will you take the path of worldly success and increased social status? This is perhaps the single most important question we may ever ask ourselves. Is the reproach of Christ greater wealth than me than, to me than anything that the world can offer? If we don't ask ourselves questions like this in seasons of relative ease and peace, we will not be prepared for such questions when the temptations are at our door. There was a time not all that long ago, brothers and sisters, when allegiance to Christ cost us relatively little in comparison to what it may cost us today. In fact, not many decades ago, being known as a Christian was seen by many as something of a social benefit something that would result in material gain for you, an upward mobility. It may have earned you more respect from potential employers. It may have earned you more trust from potential clients and customers and maybe even more social merit from potential friends and neighbors to say, I am a Christian. But today, things are different, undeniably. Today, we live more and more as you may recall from my sermon last month, if you can think back on it, and what the cultural analysis uh, Aaron Wren calls the negative world. The negative world, which is an era now, he says, in which Christianity is viewed negatively, by and large, by the broader society around us. To be a Christian is to be seen as something that is negative, as an obstacle to progress, an obstacle to the good. Moses made a choice, however. Moses knew that he had to. And sooner or later, we will have to make that choice for ourselves as well. Are we willing to follow Christ, even when it gets us into difficulties? But the text doesn't tell us that he made a single choice and that that was that. No, instead... It teaches that he continued to make that choice, that instead of just making that decision to abandon Pharaoh, he then had to go and to get the people and lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They had to follow those promises. And so he left left Egypt and he observed the Passover. We see these things mentioned towards the end of verse 27 and 28. And it would then seem that faith not only empowers us to make a one-time decision, a grand stand, a last hurrah of faith, a last hurrah of choosing God, but we have to continue doing it again and again and again. 
We have to give up day by day the fleeting pleasures of sin and of this world for the sake of knowing Christ and for the future rewards that will come with him. That's the lesson we learn from the story of Moses. But the author continues on, of course, noting then in verses 29 and 30, the courage of the Israelites who followed Moses through the Red Sea on the dry ground and then marched the walls of, around the walls of Jericho when they went into the promised land and who by faith after the seventh day brought the walls down just by marching. And notes also in verse 31, the faithfulness of the infamous prostitute Rahab who harbored and gave a hospitable welcome to the spies when they came out to Jericho to scope things out. And I think the point of these verses then is that faith not only may require us to choose Christ over wealth and power, faith may also require us to be willing to take great risks for the Lord. It will require us to to even make ourselves look a little bit foolish, to put ourselves in maybe dangerous positions, knowing that God will be faithful to us. So the Israelites, we can think, they, they ask or they risk their lives, excuse me, they risk their lives by following on dry land through the Red Sea, knowing that at any second it could come down like it did on the Egyptians. Why did they do this? It's because they had faith that God would somehow get them through and across. They then marched around the city of Jericho seven days which would have been something to mock. You can imagine guards on the walls mocking them, saying, what do you think you're doing? What good is this going to bring you? You're wasting your time, and you look silly. And yet they did it faithfully, even on the seventh day, marching seven times, blowing the trumpets. And what happened? The walls fell down. They risked being mocked. They missed the scorn of the people. And then Rahab, she risked death If they had known, if it had been found out that she uh, gave passage to the spies, that she held them in her home and she protected them and helped them flee, she would have been killed. So why did she risk this? Because she had faith that God was truly God and that his people were going to conquer the city of Jericho. And so in all of these stories, we see that like Moses, faith also involves a willingness to put everything on the line for the sake of Christ. From the world's perspective, faith today looks risky. It looks foolish. It looks like a waste of time. And it's something that a worldly person cannot possibly understand or wrap their head around. But what if you're wrong? The world asks. What if you're wrong? What if God's not real? What if you're actually losing your life and your personal freedom and will have nothing to show for it in the end? Why not just make the wise decision, you know, and live your best life right now? Why not just do what makes you happy and live for the things you know will bring you some measure of happiness and satisfaction in this life? But the Christian, with the eyes of faith, responds, I'm not wrong. By faith, I know that God is not only real, but that all of his promises to me and to all of his people are guaranteed by the immutable nature of his being and by his faithfulness to every one of his promises made to me. 
Therefore, as a Christian, I'm willing, you would say, to go in and put everything on the line because I've considered all the options. I've weighed it all out. And I know Christ is far more valuable. This is how faith rolls, as it were. This is how faith is. It risks. It puts all on the line because it knows it's not a risk in the end. To give your whole soul in order to gain the world, that's a risk. But to lose the world in order to gain your soul is to find your life. This is why Paul in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, simply says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I can suffer, and all the weight of my suffering will be nothing compared to the weight of glory I will receive in the end. That's no risk. And among the, the saints, few among the Old Testament saints would have known this better than the many mentioned now in the following verses towards the end of chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. The author of Hebrews here stacks up many more examples of what this kind of courageous faith looks like. Now, in an effort to show us how faith is what enables God's people to persevere through all kinds of difficulties and trials and challenges. And so notice how in verse 33 we're reminded that through faith, many of God's people accomplished amazing feats. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and that even women received back their dead by resurrection. This almost sounds like a great Martin Luther King sermon. You can imagine the the sort of rousing nature of his voice as you read these words. In these verses, we learn that faith can sometimes result in good consequences. We can get through our challenges, get through the difficult things by faith, and have, in some sense, a measure of success in this world. That's what I think is being mentioned here. Uh, they're conquering kingdoms. Their armies are having success. We can, we can see the resurrection stories of the Old Testament. There's some good results that may happen by faith. But there's also, in verse 35, where things begin to, to change. Things can actually also get difficult. And this is why from verse 35 all the way through verse 38, the author goes on to recall examples of Old Testament people who suffered because of their faith, who were not in really any way earthly blessed. They were actually, they, they faced more difficulties because of their faith. They struggled even more. And so it mentions torture and mocking. So sort of emotional or psychological uh, torture in a sense. And then flogging, physical torture, imprisonment, and yes, even death, being sawn in two. Christian, none of these are to be considered a failure of God's faithfulness. Not a one of them. Even in death, God is faithful to his people. That is a crazy concept to consider. Even in suffering and in torture and in being sawn in two, God is not unfaithful or weak or wicked. His promises, resurrection, and eternal fellowship with him cannot be stripped from us even by the horrors of this world. 
whatever comes our way. This is what the consistent testimony of the martyrs down through the ages teaches us. It's as if their blood cries out from the grave again and again and again. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. And if we're honest, we need their encouragement. Just just the way we would need the encouragement of our many friends around us to push us on through a trial. We're foolish if we think we can make it through the trials of this world without the encouragement of the saints who have gone before us. Without the thundering, irrepressible testimony of the martyrs down through the ages who continue to cry out to us, Christ is worth it. These brothers and sisters have given their lives as a supreme testimony to that single notion. And so like for evangelical Christians like us in the world today, we don't tend to think about martyrs all that often. When we do, we may think of them as a good example, as a good person, someone we can learn something from. Uh, But I think we do ourselves a disservice by merely thinking of them from time to time and not by just thinking about how they are so important to the witness of the church. We may think of them at best as good examples, and even at worst, we may think of martyrs as just crazed lunatics who maybe were a little too inflexible, that should have just given things up somewhere along the way. But such a limited perspective on martyrs fails to live up to the way the historic church throughout the ages has considered and reflected upon their testimony and their importance. For historic Christianity, martyrs have always been seen not just as good examples, but as constant companions of God's people on earth. They are our encouragers. Their lives are remembered in historic Christianity to be always a part of us. They are with us in some serious way, encouraging us as we go in this journey. Early prayers of the church actually bear this out. There's a famous prayer from the 4th century called the Te Deum Laudamus, which even has these words included in it. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. And that imagery of the white-robed martyrs comes from the book of Revelation. The martyrs are an important part of the Christian church. And there's reason why the church has, has highlighted this, their importance for us. And one good reason, I think, comes from verse 1 of chapter 12 of our passage this morning, which specifically refers to them as a great cloud of witnesses, by which it's, we're told that we are surrounded by. And there are two interesting points to make from this verse, from verse 1. First, the word for witnesses here is actually the Greek word marturon, which is, of course, the very word from which we get the English word martyr. So their very lives, then, are how they bear witness to us. That's the real literal translation of marturon would be witness, someone who witnesses. You don't have to be dead to be a martyr, but in the case here, it's talking about all these dead saints who gave their lives to bear witness. And so, in some sense, it is talking very much about martyrs. And we could think about martyrs because... When we tell the story of a martyr, what we're doing is telling a sermon, a very important and very simple sermon. Christ is worth it, even in death. The second point of interest here in this verse is that it would appear 
that there seems to be a sort of double meaning at, at play in this, in this verse uh, with what exactly the witnesses are doing. In some sense, we could say that these witnesses are witnessing to us, their lives bear witness to us as an example of what faith in Christ looks like. But we could also see it, I think, as seeing it as they're witnessing us. They are witnessing our lives. They are paying attention to us. They are watching us and encouraging us and cheering us on as we go through this difficult journey. And this would also explain, I think, why the verse goes on to say that because they are witnessing us, that we need to run the race that is set before us. It's almost as if they're gathered at the racetrack, watching, cheering us on, rooting us on, It's almost like they've run their leg of the race. They've now handed the baton to us, and we are running our leg of the race today. And if this is the case, I'd suggest that it's essential for us to really understand what our times are and where we are at along this race. That's where I think we can get into a little bit of where we are now in 2023, heading into 2024. If we're going to be faithful in our day... We need to know what we're up against. We need to know what the race has looked like, who the players are, and where we're heading. We will have to train also and to prepare for this race, to get ready to do it, and to get ready to have success in this race. And so I think we can look back and think about church history and where we are. Over the last few months, I've had the pleasure in our church of leading our adult Sunday school class through the, a survey of church history over the past 2,000 years, from the time of Christ and the apostles all the way up to the present day. And so this has given me a great opportunity once again to review and to see how God has been faithful to his church throughout the ages. And so I think getting, getting into this story and knowing this story is not only spiritually enriching, it, it is, but it also, I think, Uh, helps us to have our eyes open. We begin to see, especially when we look at the history of the last few hundred years, the difficulties that the church has now been facing. And in my studies, what's really become apparent to me is that at least since the era of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, the church in the western part of the world has been living through a centuries-long religious crisis. One which I think shows no signs of stopping or of slowing down anytime soon. And I think one of the easiest ways to consider this crisis and what this looks like is by simply reflecting, let's say, on the year 1524 and the year that comes tomorrow, 2024. In 15, or 1524, you think about what faith was like. Faith was the default. It was something that any person living in the western part of the world in Europe uh, would have known fundamentally, they would have known and believed God is real, God is there, God is holy and just, and he will judge me. But now, in 2024, the default, the sort of typical position of the average person is that God's not there, I, I don't feel him there, and so I don't need to live as though he is there. And so the default position now versus then is fundamentally different. And we've lived through a a very chaotic 500 years leading us to where we are now. The sort of position that we will take if we aren't careful is just to, to take what the world takes, 
and to be unbelieving people. That's the sort of default position. And so we now live in a time of what we might call unbelief. Whether this manifests in sort of a spiritual indifference, as it does for many, maybe most people. It's not that they really have a strong opinion one way or the other. It's just that they don't believe. Or it may be a sort of, uh, a sort of agnosticism where there's a doubt, a serious doubt that they have that leads them to not be able to believe. Or it may just be straight out atheism. And because these forms of unbelief are the sort of default view for us in our world today, even Christians, even ourselves, feel like belief takes work, like it's something that must be willfully chosen and kept up. It must be something that's worked on again, day after day after day. Often when you hear stories of atheists say that I used to be a Christian or I used to believe, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't continue on. That what they're saying is that I was trying to keep my faith and I couldn't. The sort of gravitational pull of our greater society pulled me away. And there's a lot more that could be said about this issue. This is a very big issue. And if you actually want to think more about this, I would encourage you to read the work of a guy named Joseph Minnick, who wrote a really good book called Enduring Divine Absence. Enduring Divine Absence. It's a very short but very pithy book on this entire subject. But the more interesting point to me is that Christianity has not only become harder and harder to believe, it's now become, as we've seen, harder to respect, harder to appreciate. The pressures of the modern era not only make it harder for people to be Christians, they make it harder for the church to be the church, for the church to remain true to her first love, to Christ, and to the teaching of his word. 500 years ago, the church was seen as the source of moral reform and health for the world. But today, and not without great irony, the world is seen as the source and moral reform of the church. Many people today would love nothing more than for the church, something that they don't really care about or consider themselves to be a part of, they would love for the church to simply become more like them. While most of us may not have heard much about it yet, Thirteen days ago, I think one of the most significant religious happenings in my lifetime took place. I think it was that significant. I will go on record to say that. The Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, with the power and backing of the Roman Magisterium, put out a letter or a declaration that now allows for Roman Catholic priests to bless those who are in same-sex relationships, those who are a part of a same-sex coupling. It's a five-page document. It's called Fiducia Supplicans, or Supplicating Faith, and it gives a long explanation of what blessings mean and don't mean. And so it goes on to say, I should be careful, that marriage is still only between a man and a woman. It's not changing its view. It's very clear to say that, but it does give grounds for the blessing of a a priest to bless a same-sex couple. Uh, And it's very tricky in how this gets worked out. I would encourage you to go research more if you're interested about it. But I think it's fascinating to me that the Roman Catholic Church, as Protestants, we, we don't think it's an infallible church, and so that's not my surprise. But the Roman Catholic Church, this sort of bastion of history and tradition and of sticking to the tradition of Christianity, has now made a move that many uh, within the Roman Catholic Church who are progressive 
are applauding and cheering with great joy. And there's even been pictures of different Roman Catholic priests performing these blessings over same-sex relationships, two men or two women in relationships. And so the Pope has tried to be careful to say we're not changing our views, we're not changing our historic doctrine, but one famous priest within the church, James Martin, uh, said that, look, before this came out, I could not bless same-sex couples. Today, I can. I think this is actually very significant news, and I think it actually is significant news because it affects us as Protestants as well. Here's what Carl Truman says about these things. This will also affect Protestants. Whether we like it or not, the officer class of our culture cares little for debates about transubstantiation and papal authority. It makes no real distinction between Catholics and Protestants. In its eyes, we are all Christians, and thus the shenanigans of the Pope will put pressure on us all. The argument will be that if Rome can change, why can we all not change? The possibility of sheltering under the broad cultural umbrella that Rome has provided will be withdrawn on this issue, and we will feel the pain of that. And so while it brings me joy to say it, I think it's not only right to sound a warning, brothers and sisters, but to do so with seriousness. In many ways, not only in 2024, but in the years ahead, things will not be easy for the church. Things are going to continue being difficult and challenging. Today, being a Christian in the city of Ripon may be not sort of negative quite yet. It may be still quite neutral. It may in some ways help and in some ways hurt. But more and more, we're going to be living in a society that does not understand Christianity and, in fact, actively wishes to see Christianity changed and updated and with the times, reshaped into its own image. And this is why our passage this morning is so so important for us. While these Christians of the first century lived in a very different time, in a very different culture, in a very different place, we, like them, live in a similar situation where we are going to face difficulties. Life is not going to be easy. And so as we prepare to go on from here this morning into the year of our Lord, 2024, I think what's needed is a sober analysis of our own souls, of where we are at. And so given our passage this morning, I think that there are three quick questions we should pause and reflect on and ask ourselves. The first question, coming from what Moses has done, is this, what do I value the most? What do I value the most? Do I consider the reproach of Christ to be of greater treasure and value than all the treasures and all the wealth of Egypt? Soberly ask yourself this question, is Christ worth it to me? The second question you can ask yourself is, why do I personally value the Christian faith? I think many of us value the Christian faith for all sorts of reasons, and those, are, those may be good reasons, but they may not be the right ultimate reason. Do we value the Christian faith because we like the sort of way things are in our life, and we like the sort of traditions of going to church and bringing our kids there and going to Christian school, and we like that it creates a community and that we have our church friends? Those are all good things. Those are great things but they're not the ultimate thing. Why do I value Christianity? The answer needs to be Christ. 
Christ. He is my reward. He is my blessing. He is my joy. He is everything. I can suffer for him. I won't suffer all of these horrible things for all these lesser reasons. You need to have a good reason. And thirdly, am I willing to lose all in order to gain Christ? In order to gain Christ. Am I willing to lose it? Am I willing to get rid of it? Am I willing to go through all, even death for him? I don't think death is on the horizon for us. I don't see that anytime soon. Thank the Lord. But are we there? Do we think about the position of the martyrs and the the fate of the martyrs, even in this present age, all around the world who are dying for the sake of Christ? Could we do that? We need to soberly ask ourselves that question. Now, as we consider these questions, I'll conclude with two two thoughts. The first one is simple. Jesus knows how difficult this is. If you ask yourself these questions and you feel the weight of them and you feel that I'm not so sure, I, I feel a struggle in my soul, Jesus knows. Jesus has been there. This is why verse 2 tells us that as we run this race, we are to do so looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So more than any saints in the cloud of witnesses that watches us, Jesus is cheering us on. He's not only our supreme example, but he's our supreme end, our supreme joy. Even when we trip up and fail and our faith is imperfect, he is the perfecter of our faith because his faith was perfect. And the second thing to mention is that we're called to be realists, not defeatists. And hearing everything I've said this morning, it might be easy to walk away and think, wow, Zach's sermon was quite the doomsday sort of sermon. It was as if everything was falling, the sky was falling, and this was all going to hell in a handbasket. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't think this. While I think there may be a difficult road ahead, I do think, as our passage makes clear, it's a well-traveled one. God's people have been here before. And the whole point is that God has been faithful all along the journey, at every step. Never for a moment moment reneging on his promises or failing to follow through. Christians today, however, may seek revival, and that's well and good. They may seek that God would change and shake up our nation and that there would be a mass return to Christ. And I agree that this would be wonderful. It would be wonderful to see our communities and our neighbors to do this. And I think it's a a good thing to pray for, that they would come to see the light of the gospel. But sometimes I do wonder if prayer for revival comes from a place that is really more of a veiled prayer for things to go back to how they used to be, back when things were easier for Christians, back when it wasn't so hard. What if God's deeper will, I'm, I want to ask, is what if, what if his deeper will in this moment of history is not for revival, so to speak, in the world, but revival in the church? What if through the difficult circumstances ahead, God's will is to strengthen us, to purify us, to disciple us, the church, through, through these difficulties because of his great love for us? And how would this change the way that we walk the road ahead? We wouldn't be hanging our heads low. We would be walking with faith and with confidence in the promises of God. And so interestingly, and I'll close with these words. Interestingly, this is where the author of Hebrews takes the text from here. 
And so I want to finish by simply reading, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, ending in verse 11. And you're going to see where the author is leading his people to go. This is not pessimistic or sad. This is hopeful in the most extreme way. So starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, which I think here is a temptation to give up, a temptation to fall back from faith in Christ, in your struggle against that sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten, and have you forgotten, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.